I tell you what, we, we met a little over a year ago, and we met because of uh, technology. How, many, how often do you hear that? We met because of technology, but our friendship really, it started to bond and gel together because of creativity and passion that this guy has for people. And uh, the biggest compliment that I can tell you about John is that he brags about the body here at Living Spring. I love that. I love it when a pastor brags about the people in the church. Do you know that, do you know that he does that? So he's not paying me to say that. <laughs> I'm just telling you, that's the way it is. And I just, I really appreciate that. So we got a chance to know each other over the year, and we, we were getting a chat. And sometime, I don't know, a few months ago, he said that you guys are in the book of Matthew. And I hope you guys are still in the book of Matthew. And so I said, well, man, I've got this really difficult passage that I've got this message about. And, and you'll find out why it's so difficult for me. And so I, he said, well, come and share it. And so here I am sharing it. My wife and I are, we're with Royal Family Kids Camps, and uh, we are midlife missionaries practicing pure religion out of James 1.27. So years ago, we decided to cross the cultural and language barriers of secrecy and silence into this world where children have been beaten with two-by-fours, and they have been whipped with vacuum cleaner cords. They hide under their beds because their nightmares are real. And we have put together a camp that we, we call it the Cathedral of the Outdoors. And in this camp experience, these kids go to camp, foster kids, 7 to 11 years old, abused, abandoned, neglected. They go to camp and they just hang out all week with folks that love God. And they get a chance to see the love of the Father God modeled different than they have seen it. You know, it takes a different model to see how you can change life, how God, you know, God can change your life. So we do that for a week. There's a grandpa and a grandma at camp. It's awesome. They're the best. They're the number one position at camp. Grandma plays old maid, has milk and cookies. It's just so nostalgic. Grandpa runs around, tells dumb stories all week. It is perfect. It is, it's, just, it's just real life. It's just how it is. Every camp's got an aunt and uncle, and it's one counselor for two children. So it's, it's unique. It's different. Uh, this summer, there's 164 of these all over the United States. There are 20 of them that are international. And God is just doing something amongst the fatherless. So that's, that's, that's what we're doing right now. But this morning, I want to tell you, man, last year, talk about, I really get into some of these things. Last year, it seems like the conversation that captivated our country last year were these, were these phrases. And I, I started thinking about it. Do you know at the end of every year, somebody publishes the top ten phrases of that year? I thought it would be interesting to put that up here, the top ten phrases last year. I'll start with ten and go up. Sudden happens. Suddenness happens. I, I, I did not use that phrase. I didn't even hear it. Super Tuesday, price of oil, lip syncing. See, now you're going so far back into 2008. And then six, it is what it is. Go on to the next screen. Five, working class whites. I don't remember that one come around in the 08 either. Lame duck, that's a sad one. Yes, we can. But as you see what climbs to the top here, Global warming, and then look at number one, top ten phrase of last year, financial tsunami. Go on to the next one, the top ten words. All right, I just took the five here, the top ten, top five words. Look at what tops the chart of words last year. Change. And you know, during this whole turmoil, we start looking at our life differently. How many of you feel like you've looked at your life different in 09 than you did in 2008? How many of you started looking at things and said, hey, wait a second, things, 
Things have changed financially, and there was such a swell of change that we started thinking, okay, do we need to go back to basics? Do we need to go back to something simple? And I think every American family experienced that. Well, during that time, it, I really got curious. And so I, I reflected on this whole thing of change, and I started coming up to this topic, the game of life. And when I did the game, you know, when I thought about the game of life, this is just kind of how my mind works. When I thought about the game of life, sure enough, I thought about the game of life. So I did a little trivia thing. I looked it up. Did you know that it, it was invented in 19... It was actually in the 1860s, but in 1960, Reuben Clammer, if you want to go to that, there it is. I bet you never know what the, uh, the inventor of the game of life looked like. There's Reuben. The uh, Milton Bradley Company was celebrating 100 years, and so they asked Reuben to come up with this game. It had been in, it had been in place for 100 years, but he revitalized it. He remade it. And what really made it take off was this young guy, this young crazy, on-the-edge person named Art Linkletter. Now, would you have ever imagined that Art would, Art would be this, you know, change agent in our country? Art Linkletter pushed it, and when he pushed it, it just sold. It sold millions of copies. I thought that was kind of interesting. The game of life seemed to typify the American dream, and then you can just kind of go through these slides, that the American dream, and, and just hear some of the questions that come up. Should I go to college, or, or should I work? A tra- How many of you have ever played the game of life? Oh, good. Oh, that's more fun. Because you kind of know what I'm talking about. Because let me just tell you, when I was a teenager, we played the game of life. I was dating Robin at the time. I went over to her house and her family, and I was, I was nervous because I'm, you know, over at the girlfriend's house meeting the parents and all that. And they have the game of life, and we're playing. And, and I had this really bad habit. I chew on things. I don't know if you're a chewer. I don't know if you chew on straws or pens or anything that's just anything, toothpicks. You're looking really hard at me. But anyways, so what happened is sure enough, as I started to you know, gather a family, I, I, I picked up my little plastic wife, the little pink plastic wife, and I, and I had her in my mouth, and, you know, and I was chewing on her. And I don't remember what happened, but something funny at the table happened. And I back sucked. <gasps> and I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I had just swallowed my wife. And... And so I'm playing this game, and I don't really know how to, you know, how do you, people are going to notice. It's like, hey, you're single again. What happened? So I finally, I don't even know what God came over, but I admitted, you know, I said, you know, I I swallowed my my wife. And, you know, you get the picture. I mean, I'm dating the daughter and all that. Her dad was so funny. He said, oh, it's all right. Everything will come out in the end. So I was like, oh, that was funny, right? I appreciated that. I didn't feel so embarrassed. They gave me another wife. <laughs> but these decisions in this game, it makes us... It just, really, I remember playing it and then obviously putting this together. This, should I go to college or should I start a career? Oh, it's so simple. You know, uh, should I get married? Can, can I afford to get married? I mean, if you remember asking that question, can I afford to get married? Should we have kids? How many kids should we have? Can we afford a house? What kind of car should we buy? We playfully ask these questions as we spun the wheel. That was my favorite part because I'm a little bit, you know, hyper. Spin the wheel. I like spinning the wheel, moving things around. The answers came by landing on a good square. The good square is when people gave you money. You remember that? The bad square was when you owed money. It it changed the course of the game. It made you happy or sad when you're playing the game. 
One may be a vacation or a tax windfall. But clearly, and this is what kind of really disturbed me, if you go on here through some of these, there's the ranch-style home. What really got me, go on there, there's your buy your SUV. These are updated prices, as you can tell. I should have slashed them now because of 09, 0% financing. But go on to the next slide. Time to retire. What really got me is at the end, the winner of the game is the one who lives in, go on to the next one, go on to the next one, retires, no, back up one, one time, one more, retires in millionaire estates. I think that's on that retirement side. Go forward one more, there it is. The one that wins retires in millionaire estates. And it just really bothered me because I looked at it and I said, this is truly how America has sold the dream to us. This is truly what we think. Of. This is how to play the game of life. I mean, it's funny looking at it in a game form, but it, it was difficult thinking, well, that's not really how it works. None of these really work like that. And so I started asking that difficult question, how does God view the game of life? And I came across this, this parable, this story. In Matthew chapter 25, in verse 14, and I'm going to touch on it, but you really you need to have it open. You need to be looking at it for yourself. Jesus gives us insight as to how God views the game of life. He has these short vignettes, these glimpses toward real life. You know, what I, kingdom life. Now you realize there's all kinds of stuff in the New Testament that talk about it. That really, really the picture of life we have here is, is just that. It's like a dim reflection. Real life, kingdom life. Is something more. And Jesus begins to tell these stories about the kingdom of life. He does it in 11 parables. Parables are short stories that have, a, that have a truth attached to it. But the thing with parables is that they're told and they're woven in mystery. They're told in such a way that you're not supposed to get it the first time you hear it. They're told so that you, when you do hear it, you think, oh, that's simple. But then as you look at it, you go, that's not simple at all. It, they're told so that you say, oh, I think I understand what's going on here. But as you read it further, you start saying, Wait, I don't think I understand what's going on here. That's what the parable is supposed to do. It's supposed to hook you and draw you in and get you to ask the text and ask the teller questions. How many of you ask questions when you're reading the Word of God? So Jesus does this, and He does it with this incredible statement. The kingdom of heaven is like... That's just, that's huge. What's the kingdom? What is, what is God's kingdom like? How is the kingdom of heaven? And then he goes on to tell these stories. He tells stories about agriculture. He tells stories about precious stones. He tells stories about celebrations. And he tells stories about business. Did you know that most of the parables dealing with the kingdom of heaven are business stories? Well, that's kind of interesting. What do all those things have to do with God? What are precious stones in agriculture and business and celebrations? What do those have to do with God? Well, Jesus says, well, they're, they're little pictures. They're little slices of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And you begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together and you begin to ask and you begin to look at it and you get a picture, a sense of what the kingdom of heaven is like. I just want to look at one of those stories here in Matthew 25 and then I'm going to talk about the impact that that story has had on my life. In Matthew 14 through 30, in 25, 14 through 30, Jesus talks about a businessman. He leaves on a trip, but before he leaves, he gives three of his employees some money. He gives them the money because he wants them to invest it. 
But while he's gone, he wants them to do something. There's an action that's required here. So he gives one 5,000, another 2,000, another 1,000. Now, you know I'm not going to do the translation into what that meant, the dollars and all that. John can handle all that deep stuff. But let's just, let's just call it for what it is. It's money, and it was, you know, if you want to look at it, it's 5,000, 2,000, 1,000. That's fine. The point is, Jesus tells this story about this businessman. Now, I don't know how many of you do this. How many of you have looked at the, how many of you have looked at the stories in the Bible mathematically? I'm not going to get into numerology a little bit, but I am going to tell you this. I did some math work on this story. This story has 17 verses. It only takes two verses to set the story up, right? Three of the verses talk about work, but a whopping 12 verses, 70% of the story talk about results. 70% of this story talk about results. And out of these 17 verses, eight of them, eight of these verses, nearly half, are devoted to a guy that has a negative response to the story. Well, that says something. I just thought it was fascinating. It might not, it might not mean anything at all. But I thought it was kind of interesting the way you, you kind of look at things here. So anyway, so what happens? The guy's gone, the businessman, he takes off for the trip. He is gone for a while. When he returns, obviously because he left, he left the investment with the three guys. When he comes back, what does he want to know? How'd you do? That's a pretty simple story set up here. He says, well, how'd you do? So he comes back. Here's what happens. The one that he gave 5K to, 5,000, that guy went out and doubled it. The one he gave 2K to, that guy went out and doubled it. The guy he gave 1K, 1,000, that guy buried it. Now, you have to, when you're reading the text, you can't, you can't undo what you already know. So you already know the story, but you got to. I think sometimes our job as pastors and as you teach the Word, I think, how many of you remember in movies when they do slow motion? I think our job is to slow motion sometimes and slow down the frames per second that your mind is taking in. And I think as you read through some of these verses, you need to slow down. And when possible, you need to break. He buried it. I thought that was kind of interesting. He buried it in his backyard like an old Hot Wheels car. Remember burying old toys? I thought that was kind of cool. Now, my biggest shock isn't that he buried it. I'm not going to go into the whole thing about burying treasure. There was some, there was some instances where people did bury uh, money and resources and treasures. They did bury them. That was the way they kind of put it in their bed mattress back in the day. But the shock really isn't that he buried it. It's why, because he actually explains what is going on. When the, when the boss asks him about the investment and he says he buried it, it is really interesting what he says. I'll go into the first person here and he, he basically says this and you can read it. And I'm definitely reading between the lines here. But you've got to catch there's some phrases in here that are really strange. He said, I buried it because you, the boss... You're a mean, harsh, unfair boss. I buried it because you seem to make money anyways. It doesn't matter what I do. I buried it because I don't like this game. I never asked for the money. I'm not good at this. And I'm afraid of losing it anyways. That's why I buried it. 
Wow. So there's this mixture of reasoning that goes into why this guy buried the investment that he was supposed to do. And in this reasoning, you've got to read it carefully, there's accusation. Okay? I thought that was amazing. There's accusation. Wouldn't you like this guy handling your 401k? This is, this is some of you are saying he is. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the boss's response, he tells this employee, you are a wicked, lazy worker. You knew what I expected and still you did nothing. The least you could have done was put my money on a CD so I could collect a little interest. Then the boss takes, he has someone take the $1,000 from that guy and he gives it to the guy that now has $10,000. Such a bold object lesson right there that plays out in this story. Then he has this cryptic phrase. It's right there in the Bible. Then he says, whoever has some will get more. But the person who has nothing to show for himself, even that will be taken away from him. Now, come on. When you read that, you've got to scratch your head. You've got to go, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait a second. Let's... To those who have something... Let me read it again here. To, to those who have some, they will get more. But to the person who has nothing to show for them, even that will be taken away. I mean, this sounds impossible. What, what, what's going on here? What's this, what is this statement? This is a very strange statement. In the context of the story. And doesn't, you know, when you read this, don't you think, wow, this boss is really overreacting. I mean, come on, it's just just one guy it's just one employee what's the big deal you know can't you write it off can't is there tax advantages to getting rid of it what what's the over and that he closes the boss closes the statement by saying take this man and have him thrown out into the garbage dump which there's there's some tie-in here that he's talking about hell wow that is harsh so you say, well, wait a second. Jesus is saying, do you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Let me tell you a little story. And after you, after you read the story about this businessman and these three guys, you just go, wait a second. This is what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like? What, what slice is God wanting me to understand here? What am I missing? I mean, the kingdom of heaven is like what? Is it unfair? Is it is it cruel? You've got to ask yourself some really difficult questions when you come to this text. I do not think the point of this parable is about money at all. Now, money's talked about, and it is a business illustration. It's a good business illustration. When when you're talking about investments, you're talking about results. It's really simple. But because Jesus is saying this, this is a picture of heaven... And money is a temporal thing. I really think it's talking about a lot more. I really think it's talking about eternal things. The point of the parable isn't about how you invest God's money and all the issues about spending the money. You remember, we are the employees here in the story. We're these three guys. You and me right here. 
I won't have anybody stand up and be one, two, and three, because somebody's going to get that third guy. But I just tell you, we are the employees in the story. And remember, the boss here in the story is the kingdom of heaven or God's economy. It's how God, it's how God runs things. I think the point of the story is kind of a question. And man, it is a question that cut into my soul. The question is this. How are you participating in kingdom stuff? To whatever extent that you have been given, and you can fill in this blank here, it may be talents, it may be gifts, it may be creativity, it may be a a perspective, it may be a style, it may be the way you are. But to whatever extent God has given you, He expects a return. And since I don't know what that point would be, what that gift would be, what that that area would be, I don't know what the, what the return would be. But I do know that God expects a return on that. How have you invested yourself in the, to increase the effectiveness of the kingdom of God? And to, see, and to see God's methods as hard, cruel, or unfair isn't just a misperception of the kingdom, but it's a warped view of God Himself. Do you see, when I talk about how the, the third guy responded, do you see the accusation? You make money anyways. I mean, do you, let me just spell it out. He is saying that God gets a return when He has not made an investment. Now, is God allowed to violate His own laws? Sure He is. But does He? Does God get return on something that He has not invested in or put seed into? Now, remember, since we're talking about you, that's where it gets kind of tricky. You. If you understand the point here, Did we actually think that God would not expect interest on His greatest investment of all creation? What is that investment? It is you. It's you. It's us. Wow. Now, Started out a little light. It's getting awfully heavy in here. It's getting very quiet. Why would I? This is a horrible introduction. Of you meeting me, why would I tell such a story? Why would I hit such a hard parable? Well, John asked me to. That's it. No, I, I, I'm telling that because really, as I go into this next part, and really it's just a story here, as I go into this next part, I want to tell you I... I have a confession to make. The reason this parable is so difficult for me, the reason it's so gut-wrenching, is because I was that third guy. I don't know how many times you come to church and hear confessions anymore. I'm confessing to you, I was that third guy. I'll tell you the story. Back about seven years ago, we've been involved with Royal Family Kids Camps for many years. Since 1988, we've been involved, and we just loved it, and, and the children changed our life. We, we went thinking that they would, we would change them. As This is what happens with children's ministry and youth ministries. We go in with these expectations that we are going to change these children. We're going we're to change these youth. We're going we're to really change those students. Now, what happens 
is that they change us. These children changed our lives, and we, were, we stayed involved. But back, back about seven years ago, the founder of World Family Kids Camp had asked me to go to training. Uh, it's called director's training to learn about how to run the camps and how to do it. It's a week-long experience. It's very difficult. It's 40 hours of lecture. It's 30 hours of observation. It's in a live operating camp. This one happened to be in North Carolina. I'd never been to North Carolina before. I'd never seen bugs that big in my life. I kept hearing people talk about humidity. I didn't know you could actually see it. I mean, I was in, I was in a strange place, and uh, I was uncomfortable. And in this context, I go to North Carolina, and I'm there with, uh, with Wayne Tesh, the founder of Rural Family Kids Camp, and he, he springs this question on me while I'm there. He said, I want you to come and join Rural Family Kids Camp. I want you to work for Rural Family Kids Camp. I thought, Wow. I'm honored. That's amazing. I, I, I just felt, you know, this is, this is great. He said, well, I can't pay you. I, I was puzzled. I'd never had a job offer like this. <laughs> I, you, want, you want me to come and get, you know, I said, you know, I'm married. You know, I have three kids. He said, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I want you to join Royal Family Kids Camp, but I can't pay you. And uh, he, I said, well, I, I'm, not, I'm missing something here. I, I, I've got financial responsibilities. He said, oh, no, that's all right. God's going to take care of that. You're going to be a missionary to the abused and abandoned, neglected children. And I just thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, that's not happening. And from that point on, I was trying to figure out a polite way to tell my friend, I, no, thank you. I, I'm no, you know, I thought it was an honor, but I no longer think it's an honor. I thought it was, sounded good, but it no longer sounds good. No, thank you. So I try to figure out how do I tell him no? How do I tell him no? And I spent the rest of the day and the evening just kind of agonizing on, I got, I got to tell him, no, this is crazy. I'm not going to do this. Nobody in their right mind would take a job offer where you can't get paid. So I was working up the effort to tell him no. And that Sunday, I went to service and went to church. It was a great service. The pastor got up. He preached on this, this passage right here. He preached on this passage. And he got to this point in the, he got to this point. I didn't even highlight it. I did it on purpose. But he got to the point where the, the third guy said, I was afraid. Do you, do, did you see that in there? I didn't point it out because I wanted to point it out now. But I, he said, I was afraid. And the, the pastor that Sunday, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but the pastor that Sunday, he highlighted it and he said this statement. Most Christians live their life out of fear. And if those words had been a bullet, he was a sniper. I was sitting there, and it's like, I saw it coming. <clears throat> it's like, oh, I've just been killed. I'm dead. I'm, I'm in the pew, but I'm dead. I'm... Have you ever had this happen where these words fly off of these pages or out of John's mouth, and you just go, wait a second, that is unfair. I was dead. I had, that hit me. That hit me hard. Most Christians live their life out of fear. Yeah, I mean, I know the rest of the... They don't live out of faith. They live out of fear. So I thought, oh, this is not looking good. Why are these things beginning to add up? Why am I here? What's, what? I'm being set up. I am being set up by God, and somehow Wayne Tesh is in cahoots. He is in cooperation with this. And uh, I don't understand, and I'm feeling uncomfortable, and I'm, getting, I'm, I'm nauseous. 
I try to call my wife and I'm trying to tell her, I, I, Wayne's asked us to do this and there's, that's a whole other part of the story. Well, I had been arguing with God for several, several months. And he was, he was already working in some areas on me and he was asking me to trust him. And, and I said, God, I completely trust you. I, 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 will do, I will do anything. I'll go anywhere as long as you don't touch two things in my life. Safety and security. These, these are the pillars of my life that thou shalt not touch. But other than that, I'll do anything. And I was having this conversation with God and, and over months, really, that had been leading up to this. God was very patient with me. It's so funny. to If you ever prayed a prayer you didn't want answered, those are so dangerous. I've learned to really hold back now. <laughs> I'm not praying those prayers anymore. They're just so scary. It's like, what if He answers it? What if He... Because He does. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. As long as it, it, it doesn't... Safety and security. Or it doesn't involve change. Oh, that's such a dirty word. Change. I, I can't go into detail here. God was patient with me. And He kept saying, I need you to let go of those things. To give you a little bit of the background so you understand just why those pillars... And I know those pillars are probably important to you too. But my pillars... You know, because it's my life, they, were, they feel like they're more important than your pillars. <laughs> but uh, my, my mom was taken away from me at birth. My dad was uh, in drug rehab at my birth. I call my bio dad, my birth dad. I was given up for adoption at four years old. The family that adopted me was in a mess. They were just in a real mess. The dad was an alcoholic. He was, a, uh, he was drinking every weekend. It escalated to extreme violence and horror in our home. Until finally, my adopted mother could not take it anymore, and, the, and she divorced him. And uh, when I was in junior high, my adopted father took his own life, committed suicide. And uh, that was difficult. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm being raised by a single mom. I've got a, a younger sister. And a few years later, my mom remarries uh, a guy I call Psychopath Ben. You may know him. He was a wicked, evil, evil, manipulative, angry man. He hated God. So there you go. There's my Jerry Springer background. I have come from these great roots of tradition with two moms and three dads. Now all three dads are dead. So trying to scratch my way out of dysfunctionality, try to scratch my way out of my past was not an easy thing. And once I felt like I had finally climbed to the rim of normalcy, and I could look, folks like you guys that are so nice, and you're dressed nice, and you smile, I could finally look you in the eye and feel like there's some equality. Right when I had that happening, God said, give it all up. And I refused. I said, no, 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 no. It took me too long to get here. I'm not going to give that up. It's a really critical moment in this prayer time when I was saying, God, I can't. You don't understand. I just can't. I'm scared to death. I can't give this to you. There was this really amazing moment where God said, Son, because He calls me Son, because He is my Father. 
said, son, I'm not really worried. I'm not concerned about your faith. I'm not concerned about how you will live your life. And for a moment I thought, oh, that is great. I'm off the hook. This is looking good. I like the sound of this. God said, son, I'm not concerned about your life, but I am concerned for your children. He says, because I know, how will they see what it looks like to live by faith unless you are willing to do it? (laughs) He got me. That's just so underhanded. Bring in the kids. Use the children. God, man. I threw up my hands and I said, you got me. What? You know, you got me. What do you want? I had nothing to begin with. (laughs) He had nothing. If you want to take it all away and start back there again, go for it. He said, you can have me. I was that third guy. I was hanging on the edge. I was taking my gifts and talents and burying them. I was spiritually lazy because I, I, I planned safe routes and secure comfortable paths. I kept hiding the resources God gave me because I really did not want to play in the kingdom. It just cost too much. You know... I didn't want to play in that area of the kingdom of God because I did not want to fail. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But the other difficult statement is most Christians live their life out of fear because most Christians are afraid to fail. You can't fail. (laughs) You can't. You've got to eliminate that out of the equation. That's a lie. That's a trick. You can't fail. But I'll leave that for something else for between you and God. I can tell you that participating in the kingdom of God and investing the resources that God has given me and entrusted me has vital, it's revitalized my entire life. Now, I still struggle with third guy thinking. And I'll tell you, it's going to go away. I still struggle with third guy thinking. But I hesitate less. I laugh at my failures more often, so it means I'm laughing quite a bit. I recognize when I am paralyzed by fear and I force myself to move forward, even though it doesn't feel good. I was that third guy. And I, you know, the point, the point here. is that I don't want you to have third guy thinking. The point is, the last point is, what does your economy look like? What does your economy look like? How are you participating in the kingdom of God? Just ask yourself, what are the sandboxes that God plays in? Because if the world were a playground... What sandbox would God be spending his time in? Now, I'm biased. I'll just, I've been pretty honest with you. I've been really honest with you. I'm biased. I think God plays in the sandbox of abused and disenfranchised kids. I think he spends a lot of time with kids 
because it is the most innocent of who we are. They represent so much. So I'm biased. I'll give you that. But what are you participating in? At what point are you meeting God and saying, I don't have much to give, but what I do have, I am willing to invest it. I'm willing to see a return. And what are you willing to do to say, I, I, I won't be that third guy. And I won't have third guy thinking. And I don't know where your pressure points are. I don't know about that. I know where mine were. And so, yeah, this parable, this scripture, this passage, very, very intimate, very difficult passage because I think that's what parables should do to our life. Is when Jesus bears the Word of God upon us that there is change. That's what happens. The worship team, if you guys want to make your, you folks want to make your way back up. Some have asked. Some have asked how how did how did you how did you do it? How'd you how'd you get out of how'd you get out of your past? Some have come up and they've said, "Wow, you seem so normal." And I say, that, "Thank you." Did you think that probably? It's like, "Wow, you seem so normal." And I say, "Thank God." If you see any normalcy in me. It's because of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. It's what God does. God has got this incredible recycling program that you just toss in a bunch of junk and, man, out comes gold. Out comes these most incredible... It's just how He works with our life. That's us. And I, I encourage you. I encourage you not to let fear, a failure, fear of whatever, I encourage you not to allow that to stop you to participate. I didn't even have time to talk about the great joy of returns, of working anywhere in the kingdom of God. And I believe there are great returns that God has in store for you. Participate in the kingdom of God at whatever level, whatever He asks. Some of you in this room, God has said, I've already told you what I wanted you to do. I've already told you what I've called you to be. You know, you've neglected it. You've ran. You've excused it away. Hey, I understand. I really understand. God still believes in you. Once you step out.